0: Good, good, good. Man, as the video said, I will... Resolve! I will... Resolve! We're going to be talking about resolve, what it means to have resolve for the right thing. Um, but before I get started, I just want to make mention that um, the voice that you heard was the voice of our very own Eddie Molina. He, he, yeah, he's, he's not here, but his wife is here, Estrella. Um, so if you see him, be sure to just thank him uh, for the work that he did in uh, helping me put that together. Um, but as we get started, let's, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we pause at this moment, God, because we want to hear from you. God, I pray that as we hear your word, Lord, that it would be our worship unto you, God. That we would be attentive to what you would want to say. Lord, and that we would obey you. God, and I pray that the meditations of my heart and the words that I speak would be pleasing to you. Father God, I pray that we we would give all distraction over to you at this moment. And that we would exalt you. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So today we we start a new series on the book of Jude. I'm going to ask you to turn there in a second. But as we begin this series, I can't shake the fact that as we start 2016, many of us have resolutions many of us have plans that we want to see accomplished this year but the thing about resolutions is that often we fail at resolutions right some of you guys have already failed like day two (laughs) others of you have been going well with with your resolutions But it proves to be kind of lifeless, kind of meaningless. And the reason why is because often we let plans, we let resolutions own us. And we quickly realize that the things that we allow to own us often don't satisfy us. It leads us to a dead end. We resolve for the wrong things. We resolve for things that in the grand scheme of eternity do not matter. They're pointless. And that's why we're not satisfied. That's why we fail no matter how hard we try. And my prayer through this, ser- through this sermon series is that we would learn to resolve for the faith, that we would learn to resolve and fight for the faith in the face of opposition. And we're going to be going through the book of Jude because Jude calls the church to resolve, to be determined in the faith. So throughout this series, I'm going to charge you to fight. I'm going to charge you to get in your stance, put your hands up, And fight. Now, I love boxing. Okay? But I also used to like street fights. I don't like them anymore. But in fights, there's three camps. There's fighter A. Okay? And there's fighter B. Or there's the bully. And the dude who's getting bullied. But then there's a very significant element... To, the, to a fight, and it's this third camp, and it's the instigator or the instigators. So those are the ones who are egging on the fighters. Man, you going to let him talk to you like that? Man, he talked about your mom, kind of egging them on. And then there's instigators who are like, yo, man, don't let him talk to you like that. Man, you better fight, man. Come on. I got your back if somebody jumps in. Well, today, I want to be an instigator that encourages you to fight for what matters, to resolve. We're going to be in the book of Jude, and as we get set to read the book of Jude, I want to read you the definition of resolve. To resolve means to decide firmly on a course of action. So today, I want to charge you to resolve to do something. And that something is found in the first chapter, or the only chapter, of the book of Jude. The book of Jude is the book right before Revelation, the last book. So you could turn to your Bibles. It's page 1027 in the the pew Bibles in front of you. And Jude, as we get set to read, wants us to resolve. He wants us to resolve to fight. To fight for what's eternal. Jude verse 1. It says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you To contend, to fight, to struggle to win for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So today, I want you to resolve to fight. But I want you to resolve to fight for the faith, not against it. I want you to resolve to contend for the gospel, not oppose it. But the question is, well, how do we fight? How do we fight for the faith how do we contend for the gospel well jude he implies the first principle for us in faith fighting and it's in verse one read with me it says jude a servant of jesus christ and brother of james the word "servant that we see in our English translations is translated from the from the Greek for the word for slave now in America, slave has a very negative connotation, and rightfully so it's shameful the way that Americans in, 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 especially in the colonies in the early not the early ages but back in the day they They would enslave people, mistreat them as if they're not human. But this is not the type of slave that Jude is talking about. Jude is referring to an Old Testament reference. To be a slave of God was actually a good thing. It meant that you were used for God for a special purpose. So figures like David... Like Abraham, were called slaves of God in the Old Testament. People who saw God as their master, and they saw themselves as ones used for his special purpose. So Jude says he's a servant of Jesus Christ. And then he says, in verse 1, continue to read, he says, he said, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. So he's saying, My brother is a dude named James. And this also testifies to him recognizing who he was before God. Because James was the brother, the half brother of Jesus. They had the same mama, they didn't have the same dad, because Jesus is God who wrapped himself in flesh. But James was born of Mary, and Judah' saying, I am James' brother. He's my blood brother. So if Jude is James's brother, then Jude is Jesus' brother, but he doesn't say that. He highlights that he's a slave of Jesus, one who's called for a special purpose, that Jesus was his master to be exalted. So the first principle in knowing how to fight for the faith is recognizing your standing with God. You have to recognize, you have to know, you have to realize where you stand with God. And he recognized that he was a slave. But then, he also reminds his readers, a group of Christians who were under attack, who felt opposition to their faith. And we'll get into that in a second. And this is what he says about them. In verse one, on the second line, he says, to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. So he reminds them, That they've been called into a relationship with God. That God called them. He said, I want to have a relationship with you. I want to have harmony with you. I want to know you and I want you to know me. Right? He says that they're called. And then he says, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. So this tells us something about their calling. That God called them, and He specifically called them like this. He made it possible through Jesus. He says that they were called, beloved, and kept for Jesus. So they were called, they they were called by God, and Jesus revealed God to them. Jesus wrapped Himself in flesh. He proved that He was God, He authenticated Himself. And then he also died and rose from the grave. And they subscribed to him. They answered his call to be his sons and daughters. So he's telling them that through Jesus, you are called to God. And then he says, beloved. He calls them beloved. So God's call for a relationship with them was also birthed out of their love for them. He loved them. He wanted a relationship with them. And then he says that they're kept for Jesus. And what he's saying is that they were called into a relationship with God through Jesus. And not only that, they were preserved for Jesus in this life. So he's calling them to fight by recognizing who they they belong to. He's calling them to realize that they stand with God as his children, that he's their master like he's his master, that they are his servants for a special purpose. Now, As I was praying through this text, I I couldn't shake the fact that I, I know that there are many here who perhaps are on the verge of walking away from the faith. Many in here are struggling with the faith. Struggling with following Jesus. Struggling with sin in your life. And it almost makes you not want to walk with Jesus no more. You want to throw in the towel in the fight. You keep getting jabs in your walk with Christ. Then there are others of you here who are walking with Christ well, but you know it's difficult. You know that serving Jesus, being a slave of Christ, is costly. It's cost you much. And you feel the weight of that. And then there's others here who don't know where they stand with God. But they're wrestling with life. They're wrestling with our broken world, with our broken lives. And the truth is that if you belong to God, you are his child and you better recognize But you have to recognize that you are God's child. If you place your trust in Jesus, then you are his child. And you need to remember that. You need to remember that you are called by God. That you are loved by God in Christ through what he did. And also you are preserved by Christ for his glory. In this world, no matter what you face, no matter what opposes you, no matter what sin is lurking at the door, if you are of Christ, if you are in Christ and he is in you, then you are called by God and he has plans to prosper you, not to harm you. So you have to recognize that you are God's possession. You have to recognize your standing with God, if you're going to fight. But it gets deeper than that. It's deeper than just recognizing that you are God's possession, that you are God's child. You also have to know and you have to realize which faith you're standing on. You need to know what you're fighting for. Because if not, you're fighting aimlessly. And in verse 2, or excuse me, in in verse 3, he continues on. He says, beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered Once for all delivered to the saints. So here he tells them, he says, beloved, I was going to write to you about our common salvation. You guys recognize and you better recognize that in Christ you are loved by God. You are chosen by God and you are preserved by God. And I pray for mercy and peace for you. And I was going to expound on that. I was going to tell you that your salvation here on earth that is preserved in Christ also has an eternal glory awaiting. That the glories awaiting for you are nothing compared to what you're facing here. That you will be saved from this broken world. He was going to write them regarding that. He was going to tell them about the excellencies of heaven but he was interrupted and he was interrupted but by what was going on here on earth he says i was going to write to you about our common salvation how this thing is going to finish but now i sense of urgency to write to you because there's something that is threatening your faith here on earth If we're awaiting an eternal glory, then we have to be preserved here in time and space. So he's writing to them to contend, to fight for the faith, to strive for the faith, to struggle for the faith, to throw a jab for the faith, to knock out for the faith. He's telling them to fight for the faith. Now notice in the text, when he says, The faith, he's not talking about having faith. He's not talking about putting your trust in something. He says the faith, the faith. What does he mean by the faith? He wants you to fight for the faith, but what does he mean? And what he means is this. The faith is a belief system that governs what you think and how you believe and what you believe, and influences, excuse me. Faith is what you think, that governs what you think, and also how you behave. So he's talking about the Christian faith. He's talking about what governs what we think, and what governs what we do, how we live. And ultimately, what that refers to is the gospel. He's talking about the gospel message. And he says, furthermore, in verse 3, he says, I want you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So right there, he specifies which kind of Christian faith he's talking about. Because back then... Just like today, there there were people who were saying they were part of the Christian faith, but it didn't add up to what he specifies what it's supposed to be. He says the faith that was once for all delivered, the one that was given and sealed, needs no modifications. He says that they were once for all delivered. And what he's saying there is this, that the faith, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of Jesus' death and resurrection was given to the apostles. Apostles were appointed leaders by Jesus himself to carry on his message about his death and resurrection. And And the apostles gave it to them according to what he gave them. No modifications were needed. He said that message, which governs all of life and informs every single aspect of what we do, does not need to be changed. It was delivered. They had the message of the gospel Jesus' death and resurrection delivered to them once and for all. And today, the Bible that you hold in your hands as entrusted to the apostles that centers around the death and resurrection of Jesus is what informs the faith. And no modifications are needed. There are no modifications. This Bible needs no changes. It is perfect. It is inerrant. That means that it has no errors. Now, as I was thinking about the process of delivery, I couldn't shake but think about businesses. Businesses are constantly delivering something. And in business, when they're shipping or delivering something, there's two components. There's the sender, and the sender is charged with first verifying that what's being sent is all there. And then not only that, the sender also makes sure it's going to the proper Address, right? Then there's also the recipient, the person who receives that package. This person verifies with the sender to make sure that the package is all there, that it hasn't been tampered with, that nobody messed with it, that nobody stole anything with it. They verify with the sender. And the same thing is true with the Bible that we hold in our hands. The sender is God, and he has secured it. He really has secured it. No modifications are needed, and we are the recipients. But often there are ideas, theologies, philosophies of life, ways of living that attempt to tamper with what's been delivered by the perfect sender. And his name is God, who's revealed Jesus through his word, centered around the death and resurrection, his death and resurrection. It needs no modifications. It informs the faith. So if you want to know how to fight for the gospel, how to fight for the faith, then you have to remember your standing with God. And also, you better recognize which faith you stand on. And if it's not on the word, then that's not the faith that God has decreed and charged us to live out. He's delivered it in his word, verified through his holy word. Lastly, he tells us to fight for the faith by rejecting what stands opposed to the faith. Rejecting what stands opposed to the faith. And in verse 4, he tells us what stood opposed to the faith of these Christians that he was writing to. So he tells them, content for the faith that was once for all delivered. And then in verse 4 he says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So Jude tells them, the reason they must fight for the faith. There, there were intruders among them. People disrupting the church. Coming into their meetings. Wanderers who were not part of the faith community. They were disturbing the church and he gives them three descriptions. And the first one in verse 4, it says for certain people have crept in unnoticed. So one, these intruders, the ones who were doing this disturbance, there were ones who were inside the community of the faith, but outside the faith. There were wolves dressed, dressed in sheep's clothing. They were unnoticed. They were disguised as being from God, but their makeup was that of Satan, was that of sin. So that's the first description he gives us. The second description he gives us is that these certain people, if you read after a note, he says, who long ago were designated For this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. So he says, these are people who are in your midst that appear to be from God, but they're not from God. And you know that they're not from God because they're perverting God's grace. And what he's specifically targeting is their perception or their idea of sex, of sexual intimacy. These people were coming into the flock, coming into the church community, and they were saying that you can have sex outside of a marital context. And not only that, they said that God allowed it. They said that God was cool with that. Because God is gracious, they must understood God's grace. Now I want to pause there, and I want to talk to my single brothers and sisters. I know y'all out there standing strong. I know as a single man who is in a dating relationship that the temptation is real. There is a real. Opposition to our sexual purity. There are things in our lives that are around us tempting us to go against God's design for sex. That wants to corrupt us. That wants to see us destroy. And the problem with that is that we're settling for crumbs of pleasure. When we fall into those things, when we fall into pornography, when we fall into extramarital affairs, when we fall into sexual temptation without being married, we're settling for the crumbs of pleasure. But God hasn't given us anything less. Take it from a single dude. God has not given us anything less He's given us himself. Don't settle for the crumbs of pleasure. Go to the different part of the bread that gives just as much pleasure in himself. These men were going into the church and saying that sex, out of a marital context, was not only permissible, but even that God himself allowed it, blessed it, they were corrupt. And then the last description of these intruders, he says in verse four again, and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, these men are among you, disguised. These men are perverting the grace of our God as it pertains to sexual intimacy. And not only that, these men profess that Jesus is their master and that they are their slaves, his slaves, but they deny him with their lie. They're talking the talk, but they're not really walking the walk. They're talking about a faith, but they're not talking about the faith. Because their lives just don't add up to it. And as we take a step back, I can't help but see that these are the very things that oppose your faith in my faith. There is a temptation to think that sex outside of a marital context is okay. That pornography is okay. That crossing boundaries is okay. There's a real temptation to think that. And guess what? That sucker punches our faith. It doesn't fight for our faith. As a matter of fact, it's against our faith. There's also an opposition that says, I'm going to profess Jesus when I'm here, but I'm not going to live like it when I'm out there. That sucker punches our faith. It kills the faith. That is not what God has called us to do. And to do so is to be on the wrong team, to be on the wrong side. To do so is to fight against God himself. Those are the very things that describe these men that oppose our faith. That centers around the death and resurrection of Jesus our Lord. So here today you're either fighting for God or you're fighting against him. You're either fighting for the gospel as delivered in the word or you're fighting against the gospel. You're either fighting for the faith or you're fighting against the faith. But I want to charge you to fight for the faith, not against it. Don't fight against it. And the way that you fight it is by recognizing that you are God's possession. Recognizing where you stand with God by realizing which faith you're standing on and also by rejecting what stands against God. That's how you fight. And some of us are in a fight like this. But we have to fight ready, ready to throw that jab of recognizing who we are in God, ready to realize which faith we stand for. And as we think about the new year, we think about resolutions and the fact that resolutions often tend to master us and own us, the things that we aspire for that are often meaningless, oftentimes govern our lives. The faith needs to govern our lives. Jesus needs to govern our our lives. And as I was thinking about this, I thought about second-generation Latinos. Now, if you're like me, and I'm sure many of you are, what your parents did growing up was clean houses. My mother has cleaned houses for years and still to this day cleans houses for a living. And after talking to my mom throughout some years, I have just asked her, like, what is it like to clean houses? I mean, you've done that pretty much, you know, my whole life. Like, what is it like? What she's told me is this, that it all depends on who the owners of the house are. Some owners shame you. They treat you like you don't exist. They take advantage of you. They pay you pennies for doing some of the most grotesque and ugly jobs that you will ever do. They take advantage of the language barrier. They disrespect you. But then there's also the good owners. The good owners treat you like you are a human. They even adopt you into their family. They give you dignity. They give you respect. They treat you like you matter. So much so that they love you. And you love them. Because you have a relationship with them. They love you so much that it makes you want to fight for them if anything threatens their house or their families. She's told me that there's bad owners and there's good owners. In the same way, we are not good owners of our lives. When we own our lives, we are not good owners. It leads us to destruction. So we as bad owners, we fight for something that is meaningless but owns us. And the rewards shame us, treat us as if we were not human and and gives us no dignity. But Jesus... Is a good owner. He's a good master. He is one who restores us, who calls us, who loves us, protects us, and he calls us saints. He calls us the very things that we're not on our own strength. He calls us children and we get to be his slaves people who are used for God for a special purpose and that is to glorify his name and the way that we are owned by God is by placing our faith in Jesus the fact that Jesus died and rose from the grave, that he paid the penalty for our sins, the wrath that we deserve for opposing God, he paid it on a bloody cross. And when he rose from the grave, he invite, he'd invited you and me to be his prized possession, to be his own. And then he gives us the power of his Holy Spirit to fight for him. To fight for him as if he owns us. As if he governs our lives. So the question for you and me today is, where do you stand? Are you fighting for the faith which centers around the gospel? the death and resurrection of Jesus that is more precious than silver and gold or anything we could ever attain here on earth? Or are you fighting for the opposition? What opposes the faith? Where do you stand with God today? My prayer is that if you don't know who Jesus is, that you would know him, that you would no longer be his enemy, but rather be his prized possession. My prayer is that if you are here today and on the verge of giving up, that you would recognize which faith you stand on, that the spirit of the living God dwells and resides in you, and that Jesus is preserving you. And I hope for those who are walking strong with the Lord, I just pray that this would encourage you to continue to fight. Fight for the gospel. That is what matters. Anything else is meaningless and ultimately self-destructs. Fighting for the gospel is a testament to the fact that we have eternity with God starting here on earth. So as I get ready to, to pray, I just want to really challenge you to to come up and pray with one of the prayer counselors. Don't miss the opportunity. If you need to be encouraged in your faith, if you want to know who Jesus is and be on the right team, I ask that you come and pray. If you want to be strengthened in your faith because you feel the weight of what it costs, I invite you to come up. Let's pray. Father God, I, God, I just thank you, Lord, for, for your wisdom, God. God, for making sinners into saints, Lord. God, for restoring what is broken and making us into your likeness, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for satisfying us. And I just pray, Lord, that we would continue in the fight, God. That we would fight for what matters. That we would fight for the faith, God, that saved us, Lord. Father, I even pray for those who don't know you right now, God. That they would fight for the right team, God. That they would meet you, Lord, and encounter you, the living God. Reveal yourself to them. Holy Spirit, do a work in them. We ask that you lead them to Jesus. Father, may we resolve to contend for the faithful in the face of opposition. In Jesus' name, I